and of faith toward God. Of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and the eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes up up on it and bears herbs useful for whom it is cultivated receives blessings from God but if it bears thorns and briars it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned father we ask you to bless the reading of your word lord this is this is a great place to be in your house with your people in your presence we love you and we we want to honor you in everything we say in everything we do Lord, this is your word. It is of extreme importance. As a, fact, as a fact of a matter, there's nothing more important right now than what's going on than the study of your word. I pray right now that you would just captivate our hearts, our attention. Lord, we have minds that prone to wonder. May we see you in all of your glory, in all of your holiness, in your perfection. And Lord, I ask you, God, that you would work mightily in and through us. Lord, we desperately need you. If there's one here that's struggling, I pray that you would just touch them, Lord. May that one turn to you in faith, believing you for the answer. Lord, I ask you, God, if there's one here that's unsaved, may he or she believe after hearing the gospel and be saved. Again, we bow before you. We ask you for your grace and your mercy. And Lord, we ask you to do something incredible in our hearts. Lord, I need you. I need you desperately. I call upon you asking for your help. We ask you this in the lovely name, the beautiful name, the magnificent name, the name above all names. The name at which every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. In the lovely name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Perhaps there's no more debated scripture in all the Bible than the text that we're going to dive into this morning. I will be upfront and honest with you. Most everyone, everyone who studies the Bible goes to this text with their framework of theology. In other words, perhaps what you were taught when you were first saved about this text is what you believe, and it's hard for you and it's hard for me to move away from what we first learned. We all have baggage under all that first ministry. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I would read, I would hear things, and I took it for granted, and I would just believe it, and then as I got older and started studying the text and learned some methods of how to study the Bible, started examining the original languages, I found out that there were things that I believed and I I was told, but when I studied the scriptures, it didn't match up what I was told. I don't know if you've ever found that in your life or not. Hopefully you haven't. Hopefully you've been taught correctly. And I don't want to blame everybody that taught me. I just would pick up sayings, listen to people, and and so on and so forth. Most of us will go to our text 
with the framework of theology. And this is something that we have to guard against. Because we presuppose of the scriptures that it must fit our system of theology. One of the most freeing things is that we can come to the scriptures with an open heart, an open mind, and the Holy Spirit, and interpret it with His illumination, with His power, with His strength, and with the modern tools that we have. We can look at the scripture and we can, tech, we can interpret it literally and understand what God is saying to us. And we don't have to manipulate the text to fit our framework of theology. Now, there are at least three main views on this text. View number one, some view this text as a proof text that someone can be saved and lose their salvation. They say it's very distinct. This is what it teaches. There are some view this text as those who fall away were never really genuine believers. They went along with the church. They went along with all the stuff, but they were never really genuine believers. And then there's a third view that says that these are genuine believers who lose their rewards, not their salvation. Now, you're going to fall into one of those three views in this room here. And I, I'm up front with you. I, I believe and I teach and I will teach verse, the third view. One of the things that happened to me when I went to a conference one time with my dad and Pastor Bob Barber, who's in heaven now. We went to Dallas Seminary a Conference down in Dallas. And I learned about rewards. I had never really been taught about rewards or anything. I, like most people, viewed, man, heaven's everything. If I get to heaven, hallelujah, it's great, you know. And we have this mindset that once we get to heaven, like we're in a big giant recliner and we get to do whatever we want to do. If we want to go to a walk, we get to go for a walk. If we want to eat grapes, we get to eat grapes. If we want to play harps and float on clouds, we get to do that. That's fictitious. That's what Hollywood portrays heaven as. All, everyone in heaven will have responsibility. Angels have responsibility. The 24 elders have responsibility. The seraphims have responsibility. All throughout the scripture, everybody in heaven has responsibility. And when I learned about rewards, you know, some people thought, well, you know, rewards, that's not that big of a deal. Let me ask you a question. How many of you realize that when someone encountered in the Bible Jesus, after he was resurrected, they were forever instantly and automatically changed forever? John... The Bible tells us he fell at Jesus' feet as though he were dead when he received the revelation of Jesus, what we know as the book of Revelation. We have been so disconnected from how awesome our God is. We have made Christianity all about us, and we're the purveyors of truth, and we tell everybody else how Things are going to be, and we got this all mixed up. God's in charge, not us. And God has set certain things in order. And rewards is one of those great processes. And so I want to begin with the context of the passage. What is this passage all about? Is he teaching that we can lose our salvation? Is he teaching that these people who fall away were never really saved? Or is he teaching that, yeah, these were genuine believers... And they fell out of their relationship with Christ to the point, to the point that they wanted nothing to do with it. And they lose their rewards and not their salvation. Look at verse 1. We start with therefore. 
Whenever you see therefore in Scripture, it automatically ties the previous thought or theme with what he's going to say. He says this, Therefore, that is based on the theme before. What was the theme before? He points back to the idea that the writer was arguing that Christians should be maturing, but they're not. They should be on the meat of the Word, but they're on the milk of the Word. They should be teaching, but they need to be taught. That is the thought. That is the thought. That is the framework. That is the context. And he says, based on the encouragement of the Word of God and and through the Holy Spirit, believers should, through the Word, grow into mature Christians. You should be a mature Christian that's able to discern right and wrong. Now, I I don't mean to be mean. I'm, I'm being passionate, okay? If you're a Christian and you're not growing, there's something wrong with your relationship. And it's dangerous. And this is a warning given to believers. This is a warning. This is dangerous territory. That brings us to this question. Is he in fact talking about lost people or is he talking about saved people? I mean, wouldn't it make sense that we know to whom he's talking if we're going to try to figure out what the passage is saying? How can we know what he's talking about if we don't know who he's talking to? I think there are four reasons in this text I believe that he is speaking to believers and I think it's foundational for understanding this with the context of moving on to maturity. Look at verse 1. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. Completeness, maturity is what that word means. He still has the same thought or the same idea. Based on you should be a Christian that's dealing with the meat of the word, not the milk of the word. You should be teaching. You should be growing. You should be thriving as a Christian. And you're not. Based on that. Therefore, because you're not... You need to move away from the elementary principles and move on to maturity. There's no provision in the scriptures for someone to come to faith in Christ and then just stop and not do anything and not grow. There's no provision for that. Yet, if we say that, the church becomes the enemy and you're just in my business. No, I'm not in your business. I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to show you what the scripture says. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and of doctrine of baptisms, of laying on the hands, of resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. These things, I want to show you how I believe, why I believe he's talking to believers. First of all, he says, let us go on to perfection. Let us, us. The writer is including the church with him. He would not include believers or unbelievers with him. That goes against everything in the Scripture. The writer, who I believe was a believer, he wouldn't be writing the eternal Scriptures, says, let us. He moves from in the previous portion of Scripture saying you to now us. So obviously the writer's a believer. Why would he include false professors or unbelievers in that group of believers? He wouldn't. Secondly, he lays out a listing of doctrines, of elementary doctrines or principles of the Bible that everybody had been taught. Why would he instruct them to move on from these elementary doctrines 
if they were unbelievers. They have to be saved first. How could they move on from these doctrines? Notice what he says. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, the doctrine of baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and the eternal judgment. Why would he encourage unbelievers to move on from those doctors? Unbelievers don't know that, right? Don't you know that the Bible teaches that the natural man cannot receive the things of God? He can't. So he is talking to believers. Number three, he attributes the work to God. Look at verse three. And this we will do if God permits. This was something that God was going to do in their lives, not them do. This is important. This is the distinguishing mark right here. People who fall away from faith, people who stop serving the Lord and fall out of the relationship with the Lord, they do it because they do not clear the clutter so that the Lord will work in their lives. Notice I said will, not can. God can do anything He wants, any way He wants, however He wants. He's God. He doesn't need our permission. But He will not work in a dirty vessel. The Scripture's clear about that. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, it's this a work of God. And God does not lead unbelievers to maturity. He leads believers to maturity. Now, fourthly, I believe he's talking to believers because he classifies these people as these next statements. Notice these statements. And these are, I believe, very exclusive of believers. Verse 4, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, those who were once enlightened, never ever in the Scripture used of an unbeliever. Always used of a, of a believer. Then he says, And have tasted the heavenly gift. Whether the gift is a salvation, whether the gift is Jesus, whether the gift is eternal life, it's still... One and the same. Jesus said, I am eternal life. So, he is addressing these people as enlightened, as tasted the heavenly gift. Now, some people say that the word tasted means a temporary trying or something like that. But, you know, Jesus tasted death for every man, the Bible says. He didn't try death. He was all in. He was all in. He goes on to say, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Partakers of the Holy Spirit. Again, used of believers. And verse 5, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. There is no description, uh, scripture, there is no description in Scripture given of an unbeliever that match these classifications or criteria. So he's talking to believers. So we eliminate the one that he's not talking to uh, professing believers that are not really genuine believers. We eliminate that. Now we're down to two. We're down to two. Either he's teaching you can lose your salvation or he's teaching that you can lose your rewards. Now, let's, let's discover what he is saying. And may I say this, this language is never used of unbelievers in the Bible. All these classifications, all these doctrines are never else, anywhere else, used of unbelievers in the Bible. So 
I believe that he is warning genuine believers not to fall away. But fall away from what? What were they going to fall away from? Now, remember the context is moving forward to maturity, not keeping your salvation. And the book of Hebrews says to every believer, it's time for a reality checkup. We're studying this book, Hebrews, and the writer is warning periodically, repeatedly, as we go deeper, you'll see that it's time for you and I to do a spiritual checkup concerning our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer's warning, believers, be careful. You don't lose your reward. I've said this many times, but I'm going to say it again. Many people in the church have never even heard of eternal rewards. I've heard some people say this, I just want to get to heaven and that'll be enough for me. Every time I think I I hear that, I want to go crazy. Because that's not a response to a holy God. That's not a response. If I get there, it'll just be enough. It's not, that blows my mind. That's not at all what the Bible says. There's so much more to eternal life than just getting to heaven. I mean, like we think, okay, I'm in the gates now. I'm done. I can do whatever I want to do. And that's the implication. The implication is I get to heaven because Jesus died, but when I get to heaven, I get to do what I want. It's like living down at the villages in Florida. By the way, it does sound pretty good living in the villages of Florida. I'm just saying... I've always wondered when that was coming. <laughs> Salvation is a living, abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm sorry that the church has, man, has, has relegated Christianity to a list of rules and regulations, a list of do's. If I go to church, if I read my Bible, if I tithe, if I do this, that, and the other, then I'll be okay. I'm sorry that the church has come to that realization because you know why? You're missing so much more if you don't know that you have abundant life that comes with Jesus Christ in a relationship with Him. Everyone who saw the resurrected Christ was impacted dramatically. In our day, we have such a low view of Jesus and God that we think heaven is the prize. Heaven is not the prize. Christ is the prize. Being with Him is the prize. Heaven is heaven because God is there. Jesus is there. The Holy Spirit is there. And if you are saved, there is nowhere else you're going to go when you die. There's no other place in the Bible that says dead believers go. But it is possible to go to heaven and be ashamed. 1 John chapter 2 tells us in his writings, uh, John was very astute to this, and he says in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 28, And now little children abide in him, that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. Has anyone here when you were growing up ever gotten in trouble and the person to whom had all the authority and you knew you were in trouble was coming and you hung your head in shame? You know, we used to get letters home from school when we got in trouble. Back then, and if you're an educator, I... I, I God bless you. That's all i got to say. I'm praying for you. 
I would gladly sign a, a petition to put paddling back in school. I was paddled a time or two, and um, I'm okay. Well, that's questionable, I guess, but at any rate. I mean, you get in trouble in school, they paddle you, send you back to class, and it's over. Now it's prolonged forever. It's a big ordeal. And teachers, I love you. I, I wouldn't want your job. But I feared my dad more than I feared that principal. I was like, dude, just paddle me, but don't send a note home. Anybody with me? Just go ahead and paddle me. And I got, I shouldn't say this, he's back there, but I got a student at signing RPE step. <laughs> Pretty good. To this day, I could probably still sign it. But that's okay because when I was a kid, Tommy Wildfire Rich was my favorite wrestler. How many of you remember Tommy Wildfire Rich? He was coming to Huntington. I just got to tell my dad. He was coming to Huntington. And I got a signed copy of Tommy Wildfire Rich. I didn't find out until later in life that my dad had signed that. And I was heartbroken. <laughs> So, we're even, Dad. <laughs> fall away literally means to fall by the wayside or fall into something. I believe in the immediate context, it would seem that the danger is falling away from an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ that leads us to maturity. How many of you have ever heard someone say this? You mean that guy goes to church? You mean that person is a believer? Maturity comes through our relationship with Christ. There is no other way for you to mature than your relationship with Christ and His Word and the Holy Spirit. You cannot mature as a Christian. Now, you might get older and learn some things through experiences, but that's not the same as being spiritually mature. It's not the same. And maturity only comes through a relationship with Christ. And if one falls away from that, how can he ever go on to maturity? It's impossible. Hence the text. If you fall away from your relationship with Christ, how can you move on to maturity? It's impossible. You can't. Because the only way to get there is through Christ and the relationship with Him. You're taking out the only vehicle to get there. I don't believe he's talking about falling out of our justification. Think about this, church. There's, there are a couple reasons why I believe this. When I speak of justification, when you are saved, when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are declared righteous by God. Even though you're still in this state you're in, and even though you still struggle with sin, you are declared righteous by God. There is not one instance in Scripture where someone was declared unjustified. If you could declare yourself unjustified, that means that your power is greater than God's. And that is the problem, my friends. That's the problem in the garden. Eve, if you eat this, God knows that if you eat this, you will be like him, a God. All these other religions have hundreds of gods, little G-O-Ds. Little gods. Because man has the self-centered nature, the fallen flesh in him that desires to be God of his life. And we would rather argue over a hypothetical situation where, well, what if someone grew up and decided that they were saved in church and didn't want to be saved anymore and they denounced God and, and we have these hypothetical arguments, we would rather argue over that than we would to move on to spiritual maturity. And that's the truth. 
<coughs> there is no <coughs> Bible precedent where anyone was ever unjustified, not one. You say, what about Judas? Jesus said, I know who I've chosen, and Judas was not one of them. Go back and read the Gospels. If you could unjustify yourself, you would be saying that you are more powerful than God. And you're not. Well, you say, well, then what is the, what is the consequences of someone growing up and say, I've tasted religion, I've gone through it, I've been saved, and now I don't want anything to do with it. What's the consequences? Well, the consequences are they lose, they fall away from that relationship with Christ. Now, listen to me which is all, where all the blessings of God are, which is where the promise of provision, protection, peace, right? That's where all that is. And the writer said that if one does fall away from his relationship with Christ, then it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. When everybody hears the word repentance, they only think of the time that they repented for salvation. But repentance is an ongoing thing in the life of the believer. We haven't taught this in churches. Repentance is, should be a daily sometimes thing. Repentance is a change of thinking, a change of mind that affects your conduct. For instance, a lot of people will be stirred up in a message and they'll confess their sin. And then they fall right back into it. You know why they fall right back into it? Because they confessed of it, but they never repented of it. Repentance is so much more than being sorry. Repentance is not sorry. The Bible says, godly sorrow worketh repentance. It's not the same. I hope you're sorry for your sin. You need to be sorry for your sin. But it's not the same as repentance. Repentance changes your mind about it. God says, His Word says, this is wrong. I'm encountered with it. I change my mind and say, yeah, that is wrong. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be a part of that. But we automatically see the word repentance and we just think about salvation. We don't think about the context and what's going on here. He's saying, listen, if you want to move on to maturity, yet you fall away from your relationship with God, how can you move on to maturity? You can't. It's impossible. It is impossible. What he is warning them about is that if one falls away from his relationship with Jesus Christ... He could get into a mental and spiritual condition and state that he is so hardened in sin that he has no desire to be renewed to joy, blessings, and especially maturity in Christ. Joseph Dillow said in his book, The Reign of the Servant Kings, This is not a renewal to salvation from sin's penalty hell, but a salvation from sin's power. Do you know what God did in Romans chapter 1 to those who refused to acknowledge that He was God, that refused to uh, submit to Him as God? The Bible says He gave them over to a reprobate mind. He gave them over to their own vile affections. You know what God did? He pulled His hand away from them and let them have their own way, and they went into every vile, disgusting act known to man. God removing His hand and His presence from them was God judging them. Do you know what a world... Look at the world we live in today and the people who know Christ in in the United States of America. And look how it is with all of us believers. Could you imagine a godless world? 
Could you imagine? I can't even imagine a Christless life. I, I've, I can't tell you how many funerals I preached. And every funeral I preach, there is a distinct difference between believers and unbelievers. Total difference. It's sad both places. But it's extremely sad of someone that doesn't know Jesus Christ. I don't know how people could get through a life like that. It is possible for a believer to drift so far away from God that he doesn't, has no desire to confess his sin or change his mind about it, and God says, okay, go ahead. You're not going to lose your salvation, but you're going to lose all your blessings. You're going to lose all your rewards. And that person will certainly be ashamed when he stands before the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, what do you mean be ashamed? Well, I've already told you what John said. John said that it is possible for us to be confident that we don't need to be ashamed. So it also leaves the possibility that one could be ashamed when he stands or she stands before Christ. Now, I find this interesting in the text. It talks about... Uh, in verse 6, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. All other verbs in this text are in the aorist tense, except crucify, which is in the present tense. In other words, because these believers continually and habitually sin and habitually shame the name of Christ, they continually make a personal mockery of what Christ did on the cross of Calvary. Their continual hard heart and refusal to listen to the Word of God and the conviction of the Holy Spirit makes their repentance impossible. They just won't do it. Verse 7 and 8 give us an illustration that explains this clearly. Verse 7, For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes up on it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Verse 7, God gives His Spirit and His Word to His people and He desires that they blossom and mature to a point where they're fruitful and receive His blessings. God delights in blessing His people. However, verse 8 shows us that the believer who pursues a life of sin is worthless and is close to being cursed. He will not be cursed to lose his justification, but he will lose and watch his works be burned up as he loses his rewards. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I want to show you this. This is a powerful text. This is not something that I just dreamed up. It's something the Bible teaches. Look in verse 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 13. It says this, Each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has received, which he has built on, excuse me, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will will be saved yet so as through fire. This text is a warning to believers not to fall away from your relationship to Jesus Christ, but to go on to maturity. Go on to maturity in His strength and in His power. To move on. 
It's not saying that you can lose your eternal salvation. Now, I would like to just say five things quickly, five questions, ask you five questions before we close. I want to ask you these honestly. You might say, well, how do I know if I'm in danger of falling away from my relationship with the Lord? I want to ask you five questions. Number one, do you have a disinterest in and a drifting away from Jesus? Do you have a disinterest and a drifting away from Jesus? Do you feel like you're moving away towards sinful things? Have you lost your desire to grow and mature? Have you lost your interest in the Word of God? The worship of God? Are you bored during times of worship? Are you disinterested in the things of God, the people of God? Would you rather be doing things in the world than you would in the church? Do you find yourself making more willful choices to sin? There's a denigration that happens. It moves ever so slightly. And if you're not careful, if I'm not careful, we can be swept up and fall away from our relationship of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many, many miserable Christians. I know of men, I know of one especially, whom I talk to occasionally, but who was once in church, who was once serving the Lord, once loved the Lord, started drifting a little bit. I don't know if you've ever lived around a body of water or been around the river much, but there's a thing called erosion. Erosion happens over time. It's not one sudden incident. Somebody says, what happened to someone who fell? It wasn't one isolated event. It was an erosion that happened over and over. The tides of life came, and it happened over and over. This person was saved, baptized, serving the Lord. He went to Bible college. Drifted away from his relationship with Jesus. Found that he could be someone else in someone else's arms. Went into sin, lost his family, lost his business, lost his health, and is a miserable person. It's impossible for that person to be a mature Christian because he's not walking with the Lord. Yeah, he'll go to heaven, but he's miserable here, and he'll be ashamed there. I don't know where you are in your relationship with Christ. And I don't know what Christ is doing in your life. I hope, he's, I hope he is preeminent in your life. But I tell you this morning, please, please, do not drift away from your relationship with the Lord.
you will not win. You can dress like a Christian. You can talk Christianese. You can fool everybody into thinking that everything's all right, but you can't fool Jesus Christ because he knows everything. And the writer is warning us. Watch your relationship. Watch your relationship. This is why I'm cautious. I don't want to overburden people with menial tasks that mean nothing. Because you can suffer. Heard just this past week a young man who had to get out of ministry because he was burned out. He put ministry before his relationship with the Lord. And it can happen. You can be serving and doing all the things that are good things. But your soul needs nourishment from Jesus Christ, from his word. You need that relationship with him. If you're drifting, why don't you stop? Why don't you stop? Why don't you confess and repent? Why don't you make it right with God this morning? Preacher, I don't want people to know I got things in my life. Listen, we all got things in our life. That's pride. And that's garbage. That pride will destroy you. We're all a wreck. We're all a hot happening mess, as someone said. We all need the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. None of us stands on our own ability or our own talents. We stand on the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Let him, let him move you to that intimacy with him. Let him be preeminent in your life. Surrender your will. Take your hands off. He's truly worthy. Father, we love you. We pause for these moments.